0: I want to invite you to take a moment to open up your Bible that you brought with you. Bible that's there in the pew, or through the Bible app. That's uh, the instructions. Instructions are on the screen to Deuteronomy, chapter eight. If you're with us for the first time, we are going through a year-long journey through the Bible, and we're doing it by way of this book, this condensed 31 chapter narrative called the story. And this is just, again, sort of bringing together the whole, all of the books of the Bible, and we're today in chapter 6. Chapter 6. And chapter 6 in this book summarizes the last two books in the sequence known as the Torah or the Law. And those, that sequence of, called the Torah or the Law are the first five books of the Bible. And that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and today, chapter 6, summarizes the last two, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And I just want to give you just quick, two quick snapshots of these books. On the, Deuteronomy is, is at the end of this sequence. And Deuteronomy takes place on the eve of entering the promised land. And it really is Moses' way of giving a sort of reflection and review with the people. In Deuteronomy, through a series of speeches, Moses reminds the Israelites of where they've been, what God, God has done for them through it all, how much they've learned along the way, and therefore, what God expects of them moving forward. Before Deuteronomy is Numbers, and Numbers is the book about what happens in between. In between getting from here, that would be out of Egypt, to there, to Canaan. And it records the traveling of God's people specifically from Mount Sinai, which is where we left off last week, to... Again, the promised land known as Canaan. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in the book of Numbers. I will address Deuteronomy, but the bulk of our attention will be on Numbers. Now, as I've just said that, I've I've had you turn to, and we're going to read from Deuteronomy. Because, as I told you, Deuteronomy is really a review, and it's kind of a great way to enter into Numbers to look at a part of how Moses sort of reflects on that journey. So if you have those Bibles open, let me read to you and read along and listen to Deuteronomy, a little bit from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'm going to be reading at verse 1. It reads, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to obey his commands his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day and this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God So we're just a little snippet of Deuteronomy Moses reflecting back on how the journey went to get from there to here and the impression we get from what Moses says here is that things went well on the one hand. I mean, they made it to Canaan. So that's a good thing. They, they got to where they were going. But I wonder as I was reading, if you were either listening or looking down in your Bible, if you noticed one little thing, one little detail that sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. And if you didn't, I'm going to point it out in just a second. But as a, as a way of pointing it out, let me give you some geography for a second. Let me kind of help you to kind of see the trajectory of Israel's journey here. Now, this road trip that we're talking about in Numbers actually began as the Lord, through Moses, led his people out of their 400 years of slavery in Egypt. It started back in Exodus. And from that point to Canaan, the most obvious route would have been this heavily traveled road that the prophet Isaiah much later on referred to as the way of the sea. And you can see that route, that direct route that's there in the red on the map. It's about 175 miles long, quite scenic. And this is most likely the way that, if you go back to Genesis, Jacob and his 70 family members used on their way back to Egypt to escape the famine and be reunited with Joseph. You remember that part of the story. This is probably the route that they took because it's the most direct one. It's a fairly, as you can see, straightforward path. In fact, if you walked an average of, let's say, 20 miles a day, you could make that trip in about a week and a half. Now, when we think about The Israelites here in the wilderness, we need to compensate for the larger number of people. Conservatively, we think it's about two million people. This is an enormous group. They're also bringing a lot of baggage with them. So adjusting for that, it shouldn't have taken them still more than a month to get from where they were to where they were supposed to be. But if you've been reading along in the story or if you're familiar with this story, you know that the Lord didn't have the people take this direct route to the promised land. Instead of going by way of the sea, you see the new route that's in red, He took them on a detour south to Mount Sinai. Now, you may look at this and think, well, that stinks because, man, that's way out of their way. But I want to share something with you. Even with this year-long side trip to Mount Sinai, it shouldn't have added that much time to their overall journey. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 1 says that it takes 11 days to travel from Sinai, they're at the bottom, A place called, uh, from Mount Sinai to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is the south side of the promised land. So even from Mount Sinai where the Lord takes them, it's only an 11 day journey to get there. And I'm giving you all this because I'm hoping in telling you this, maybe you realize that little detail that sort of sticks out in what Moses said. If you were listening very carefully, you probably noticed despite the actual physical distance that we've gone over, that Moses says the people took 40 years to get to the promised land. That's a huge difference in time. And another detail that you probably wouldn't have noticed just from reading Deuteronomy chapter 8, but if you read the whole of the book, you would notice right away of Deuteronomy is Moses is giving this speech. He's saying these words to the next generation of Israelites. The first generation died in the wilderness. And so we step back and go, okay, why did their journey take so long? How does that, that become 40 years What happened along the way to cause the loss of a generation, let alone the delay of their arrival? And why we want to answer those questions is for us, we want to say, what can we learn? What can we learn from retracing the steps of their journey? And that's our focus today. That's what we're going to look at. So let's consider their travels. Let's consider the book of Numbers. And this graphic doesn't even fully do it justice, but I want to just say before I start talking about Numbers, that trust me, you just have to be there. And what I mean by that is there's no way in one sermon, let alone even a sermon series, I could summarize all the things that take place in Numbers. This is probably true of any book of the Bible, but there's a lot going on. And so I really just want to encourage you, as I'm going to try to summarize, as I always do, this is a book you've got to read. You've got to get into the details because there's a lot going on. Let's talk about numbers. Let me give you a way to conceptualize it. The book of Numbers is arranged according to the stages of their journey, as you see on the slide. So each, the, the book is arranged by each kind of place they go and the travel that's in between. And so for the first 10 chapters, they're still at Mount Sinai. And what starts the book of Numbers is a census is taken. Basically, they count all the people, just like you do on any road trip, right? You count all the heads before you pack up to go. By the way, if you're wondering why is this called the Book of Numbers, that's why. Because they start by counting all the people, by taking a census at the beginning. But that's not it. In the first 10 chapters, they don't just take a census. They also organize. They're given specific instructions about how to arrange the tribes of Israel, both when they're journeying and when they make camp. And then the final part of these first 10 chapters is God outlining through Moses some more purity laws. And in essence, what this is about is in their ongoing travels, God is revealing through Moses how the people are to keep themselves and their camp clean, unspoiled, uncorrupted as they travel. That's the first 10 chapters of Numbers. And then after all this, they head out. And now when they head out, if you haven't read this book, or if you haven't been in it in a while, when you get to that part traveling from Sinai to Paran, you might think, given all they've learned, all they've been through, and if you've been with us in this series so far, you know what I'm talking about. If you get, think about all the preparation that's been made for their journey, heck, just in those 10 chapters of, of uh, Numbers alone, those first 10, as Moses and the people pack up and begin to move towards their anticipated destination, the promised land, we might expect things to go more smoothly than they have before. But if you've read this story or you're at all familiar with it, you know sadly, this is not the case. And this is worth stopping and considering. Despite all the signs and wonders they've seen, consider that. All the signs and wonders they have seen, despite all of that, despite all of the information they are, they've been given, the planning, the preparation, All of that, signs and wonders, revelation, information, preparation and planning, despite all of that, old habits die hard. Traveling from Mount Sinai to the wilderness of Paran to a place called Kadesh, the people start right back where they left off when they were camping at the foot of the mountain. And what I mean is they grumble and complain about everything and again, it's important, you, you, if you've never heard this before, when we say grumble, we're not, grumbling comes before complaining. And grumbling is when you do that passive-aggressive. You grumble under your breath. The people grumble and complain about everything. It's the same song, different verse, on the way from Sinai to Paran. They, they complain, they grumble about how hard it is traveling through the desert. And as they complain and grumble about how hard it is to travel through the desert, God literally lights a fire to get their attention. Then they start complaining. This is by far the most humorous part to me in a sad kind of way. Then they start complaining about the food. They've complained about the food before. You remember this. And God provided manna, that stuff, that bread that fell from heaven, right? Well, the people all of a sudden on the way from Sinai to Paran just lose it and they go, That's it. We're done with manna. We want meat. Can't we get some meat? And it's great, because then they start talking about how Egypt was a culinary paradise, man. Egypt had potatoes and leeks, and it was awesome. We were in slavery, but we ate so well. And so God says, okay, you want meat? You got meat. And if you know this story, he sends them quail. All the quail they can eat. No, that's not exactly right. God says, not all the quail you can eat. All you're going to eat for 30 days is quail. You want meat? Spam, 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 spam. There you go. The people complain about the hardship of the desert. They complain about the food. They start to complain about Moses' leadership. In fact, even Aaron and Miriam get in on this one. That's right, his closest people, his, his family, they start to contest his leadership. And so God stops and shows everyone, sadly through the example of Miriam, how sedition is like an infectious plague. That's just getting from Sinai to Paran. When they get to the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh, God says, okay, We're stopping here, and this is roughly halfway the halfway point of their journey to Canaan. God says, we're stopping here, and he says, Moses, get 12 spies and have them now go and scout out the land of Canaan. And so 12 spies are picked, and they go. 40 days later, they come back, and these 12 men return with different views of what they saw. Everyone agrees, all 12, everyone agrees the land is plentiful. Oh my gosh, it is a land of milk and honey. It is lush. It is fertile. It is promising. They bring back a sample but that's where they're no longer united because everyone agrees the land is plentiful, but 10 of the spies, the majority of the group, say, okay, but the people living in the land are giants. They are impossible to overcome. They literally say they're gonna squash us like bugs. 10 go, the land is plentiful, but the people are crazy. They're, They're giants. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, argue for moving forward, saying, God is with us, let's go. What's interesting about Kadesh, this place where this all takes place, is Kadesh means spring of decision. And that's exactly right, because it's time for a decision, for the people to decide what they're going to do. And as this divided report spreads throughout the community, you have Joshua and Caleb on one side trying to urge the people to have faith in the Lord, let's go. But then there's the other 10 spies who are spreading fear and uncertainty about getting going on to Canaan. Let's go, heck no. And so the people start to murmur. The people are in the right place to make the right decision, but they start to murmur. And murmuring turns to grumbling. Oh, we never should have come here. It would be better to die in the desert. We should go back to Egypt. Grumbling becomes complaining. You know what, Moses, you stink. And then complaining becomes outright rebellion. People literally start to grab rocks. They're going to stone Moses. And understand, in this moment, the people are not just rejecting his leadership. They are denying the Lord's. And can I just we've been here before, man? Is anyone else, if you were with us? This is, this is like just like the golden calf. What the heck? We've been here before. We're back here again. It's crazy. And and how how many more times do the people have to see any other way than the Lord's way is a dead end for them? But no, they're ready to kill Moses. My friends, death is what the people deserve once again, based upon how they're acting, what they've done. But once again, Moses intercedes, and the Lord forgives everyone. The Lord forgives everyone. But here's an important thing to see in Numbers, an important principle. The Lord forgives everyone, but forgiveness doesn't negate facing the consequences of their actions. You need to hear that. Forgiveness doesn't negate facing the consequences of their actions. God gives the people, those consequences are, God gives the people what they want. They literally say out loud, it'd be better for us to die here than to go there. And so God says, okay, I'll give you what you want you wish that you had died in the desert rather than go there, then that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get your wish. 40 days of travel is now going to become 40 years of wandering. Anyone 20 years of age and up is just going to roam in the wilderness until you have died. And then we'll try again with the next generation. Now this may seem harsh, but remember, God gives the people exactly what they want. This is what they say would be better. So God says, okay, here you go. And the latter half of the book of Numbers, that part from Paran to Moab right outside of Canaan, the latter part of the book of Numbers records those 40 years, those four decades of aimless wandering. And it is not a pretty picture. It is a travelogue of more grumbling, more complaining, if you can believe it, more rebellion and disobedience as they interact with their surrounding neighbors. It's so bad, in fact, even Moses loses his cool and ignores God's specific instructions. And so Moses, Moses too, as he passes the baton of leadership to Joshua, finds himself able to look upon the promised land, but he is not allowed to enter it. When people talk about preferring the God of the New Testament to the God of the Old. When people say things like, oh, the God in the Old Testament is so different from the God that we see in the New Testament, they're often pointing to books like Numbers. I mean, people, if you read this, beyond this this brief summary I've given you, you read this and you go, man, God is so angry and mean. Man, he's always disciplining the people. And poor Moses, what the guy's been through, he strikes a rock twice and now he can't go to the promised land? Sheesh. And this is, again, where we get this idea that God somehow changes between the Old and the New Testament, or we prefer the God of the New Testament to the Old. But once again, I'm here to show you as we go through the story that God is not the one who changes, that this is the same God that we see in Jesus. And how I'm going to help you to see this is to maybe once again reframe how we perceive this part of the story. Because all that we've talked about, all that we see in the book of Numbers, for me, reflects the adolescent stage of the people's relationship with God. This is adolescence that we're seeing here. And for those of us who don't remember adolescence or who have chosen to forget it, some of us here are going through it, adolescence is that developmental period, that season of growth where we find ourselves in that awkward transition between no longer being a child on the one hand and yet not yet being an adult, right? If you think about that understanding of adolescence and you put it on numbers, it totally helps you to understand what's going on here. Let me help you to fill this out. Remember, part of God's covenant promise, why we're here, is God has promised to restore his whole creation. And how he's going to do that, going back to Abraham, remember this now, is he is going to grow up the people of Israel into a kingdom of priests to bless the nations. And think about where we started. As Numbers opens up, the people have been camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai for a year. One of the reasons for the detour on their travels, why they don't take the direct route, why God God brings them to Sinai and keeps them there for a year, is to basically take them to school. That's what's going on here. God takes them to school. Think about it. They've been immersed in Egyptian culture for over four centuries. So God spends a year giving the people, his people, time to get to know him to learn his character, to discover his way of doing things, his purposes for creation, and specifically his calling upon their lives. After a year in the classroom at the foot of Mount Sinai, they learned a lot. This is what we talked about, if you were with us, last week as we looked at the second half of Exodus and Leviticus. God provided his top ten, his rules for life, his boundaries and standards and practices for life to be good, The way things were supposed to be. They ought to be. They were created to be. Through instructions, God had them create the tabernacle. This visual object lesson of God providing a way to be with his people. Present, and never miss this, at the center of their lives. And God says, I want to be present and at the center of your lives to guide and protect you. And also, at the mountaintop, even in the midst of their imperfections, even in the midst of their inevitable mistakes and even outright rebellion, golden calf, God graciously provides through the establishment of the priesthood and the system of offerings and sacrifices a means for there to be reconciliation, healing, and wholeness, a way to get a redo to pass rather than fail in the community's relationship with him with each other, and even for each person within themselves. This is all what takes place in that first year at school. But when we get to numbers, having been given all that information, now it's time to graduate, to put all that knowledge to work, to engage in the relationship outside of the classroom, in the midst of the world before them. This is what we heard, if you remember from Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Moses reflects on that time that's in the book of Numbers, this is what Moses reminded the people, right? He says, as you traveled through the desert, the Lord was testing you in order to teach you. The Lord was testing you in order to teach you. He was trying to mature your relationship with him, to build your character, your faith, your practices so that you can live out your role as his agents, agents of blessing to the world. But as we talked about, as you know, those were all of God's intentions, but the people refused to listen. The people refused to follow directions. The people refused to trust in their father's guidance. What we see throughout the book of Numbers is the Israelites think they're adults and yet they act like children. Now, sometimes people will push back at this point and say, but aren't we children of God? What's wrong with being children? There's nothing wrong with being children. We are children of God. But there's a difference between being childlike and childish. And all through the book of Numbers, the Israelites are not childlike. They're childish. They're childish. Having gained a little bit of knowledge, starting to master some things on their own, the children of Israel think they know better than their father. We can get there faster, they grumble. Why are we doing it this way? We don't need to go through those steps. They complain, it was better the other way. Does this sound at all familiar? Does anyone relate to this? They struggle with their impatience to get there, to be done already. Enough with school. Got any, anybody here who's got senioritis? Who's in school right now? Enough with school. Those of you who are in, co- in college, enough with lessons and lectures, man. We heard it all from Moses. Are we there yet? Sound familiar? Impatience—that was real right there—impatience to get there is one side of adolescence, but what also belongs on the other side, which is really strange because it doesn't really seem like it belongs together, but when we talk about adolescence, on the one hand, there's this impatience to get there, but ironically, the other part of adolescence, confusingly, is this resistance to change. (laughs) You know what I'm talking—that's why we look at people who are going through adolescence and are like, what is wrong with you? I want to get there. I don't want to change. The Israelites want their freedom, man. Oh, man, they want their freedom, but they don't want the responsibility that comes with that freedom. Of course they want to go to the promised land. Who doesn't want to go to the promised land? They want to go to the promised land, but they're afraid of the challenges of growing up, the unknown, the difficulties. Again, can any of us relate? Hey, stop bossing me around. Why do I got to move out of the house? Hey, you stop, why are you not paying for my gas? What do you mean I got to buy my own car? What? Numbers is about adolescence. Now, we can think, and many of us do, in terms of adolescence by way of puberty. And I probably right now have brought up horrifying remembrances for some of you who are older. And for others of you who are in the thick of it, you're like, man, this is deep. This is hitting home right now, right here. And we could think of adolescence in terms of puberty. The physical changes that happen to us. And here's the thing, if you're in the midst of adolescence or if you it's a long distant, mem- distant memory, that's the easy part of adolescence as hard as that may be to believe, because all of us, regardless of whatever we do or don't do, physically get through it. We get through puberty, right? But what Numbers is pointing to is the deeper challenge and experience of adolescence, which goes way beyond physical. Numbers is pointing to the the challenge and experience of maturing mentally, emotionally, spiritually, because let's face it, and this is for those of you who are in the adolescent phase right now, you really need to hear this. And for those of you who think you're past it, maybe you also need to hear this. We'll all mature at some point physically. We can all get through puberty. But we can still be, remain in that adolescent phase. Going to college, getting a job... Buying a house, owning a car, getting married, or having kids doesn't necessarily make a person an adult. Teenagers hear that, and adults hear that too. Because as adults, we often throw that into our teenager's face, right? Well, when you have all this stuff, then you can call the shots. Very mature, by the way. Very mature. Those things, you can have all those things, you can reach all those milestones and still be immature mentally, emotionally and spiritually you can be stunted and why i'm teasing this out what i'm getting at and i know i'm pushing some buttons for myself as well is we can sit here and read numbers and we can shake our heads man what a bummer these people we can roll our eyes at the attitudes and actions of these people and just turn our page turn the page on the book of numbers Whew, man man, we're glad we're done with that But I think the whole point of why we have to read numbers, why it's in here, is is it, it is about stopping and recognizing ourselves in these people. This is an encouragement for those of you who are teens or youth. And for the adults, this is where you really need to perk up if you haven't been. When we read numbers, when we see adolescence in numbers, remember these aren't teenagers who are grumbling and complaining. These aren't 15 and 16-year-olds who are murmuring. These are grown men and women as old as you, some of them older than you, who are with some years on them, who are mumbling and grumbling, who are refusing to go forward with God and ultimately rebelling against him. We, all of us, can relate to their attitudes and behaviors even if we don't want to admit it. Because what we see as we read through numbers, what we encounter is a picture of life as we know it on most days. And what I mean by that is numbers shows us the picture of life that we see on most days and that picture is life in transition. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but you and I, we tend to spend more of our time in the wilderness than we do in the promised land. We spend more of our time in that space in between where we find ourselves versus where we want to be, where God promises to take us. Our lives are more often than not about transition. Think about it. Life in transition, we all at some point live in that space between graduating and getting a job. Life in transition, we all at some point live in that space between dating and getting married. Life in transition, we all live in that space between raising our kids and seeing them come into their own. Life in transition, we can live in that space some of us have, some of us are, live in that space between diagnosis and hopefully remission. Life in transition, some of us have lived in that space between facing our addictions and finally breaking free of them. Life in transition, living in that space between being let go and having to find a new job. Life in transition, living in that space between saying goodbye to a loved one in this life and being reunited with them in the next. We all find ourselves waiting in that space between where we are and where we wanna be. These are all wilderness spaces and there's so many more I could point to that we all journey through but the thing that Numbers is, is reminding us is while we all will travel through the wilderness, the key is we have to be careful not to find ourselves wandering in the wilderness. We don't want to get stuck there. The book of Numbers, in other words, is a mirror for us in these spaces of transition. God calls us forward in our lives. He calls us forward. He assures us we can trust him. He has proven his faithfulness to us over and over. But the transition comes... And how do we walk through that space in between? Do we respond with impatience? No show of hands necessary. I can say you all respond with impatience. Because all of us, we're always in a hurry, man. This hurried, impatient, instant gratification mindset is a part of our culture. It's part of our lifestyle. We're always looking for the shortcut. We're always looking for the quick fix. We'll pay money for it, because we just wanna get there now, today. None of us want to wait unless we have to. And if we have to wait, you know it, we grumble. And if waiting goes a little bit longer, we start to complain. And God helps somebody if we wait too long, because then we rebel. The thing about the book of Numbers, and it's really not just the book of Numbers, it's the whole story of the Bible, something that's made absolutely clear, not just in Numbers, but the whole Bible, is this. God never hurries. Hear that. God never hurries. God's timing, annoyingly, frustratingly, is never in sync with ours. So if you're frequently telling God, God, could you sync your clock with mine? God's going, "Um, excuse me, pardon me. I think you've got that the other way around. God frequently, we see this in the story, we see this in our lives, and I'm saying something right now that's not popular to say out loud, but it's true. God frequently makes us wait. Because here's the thing God is more concerned that we arrive prepared than that we arrive soon. God is more concerned that we arrive prepared than we arrive soon. And here's the other thing, for our father, the journey, we see this in the story, you'll see this in your own life if you're willing to, to look. For our father, the journey to get there, wherever there is in that moment in our lives, for our father, the journey to get there is often more important, more instructive, more a part of our growth and maturity than the destination itself. How... Do we respond when transition comes? How do we walk through the spaces in between? Are we impatient? Do we respond with fear and resistance to change? Again, I won't ask for a show of hands because by and large, we all are afraid of change. We all don't like change. Even the pleasure seekers, the thrilling, the people who like you know, to live on the edge, there's a limit where, yeah, no, no, I, I don't like change. We, as a, as a species, we like to arrive, but we don't like to go. We find safety in what is familiar and comfortable. That's our security, right? We are safe and secure when things are familiar, when they're comfortable. We are intimidated. We don't like it when something is unknown. Fear drives more of our decisions than we ever admit. We want to avoid conflict. <laughs> What can I do to avoid conflict? Fear drives our decisions. We want things to remain the same. What do I have to do so things don't change? We'd rather go back than go forward. And I'm speaking to a mixed crowd right now, and this is good because we're all gonna do this at some point of our li- in our lives, but we're all gonna miss the same thing. All of us at some point in our lives, we all wanna go back rather than go forward. In fact, that'll be borne out by at some point in your life, you'll tell yourself, you'll get together with a group of people who are like-minded, and you'll say, man, the old days were so much better. Maybe you've said that already. Man, this world, oh, it was so much better back in the day. And if you're a teenager right now and you're like, I'm never gonna say that, I'm here to tell you, you will. You can tell yourself all day long you're not going to say it. I was that teenager and John was that teenager. You will say it. It will come out of your mouth and you'll go. (laughs) We all will fall victim to go, man, it was so much better back in the day. And what's hilarious is we'll say that out loud. We'll get a group together and we'll grumble how much better it was back in the day. Even as we forget or choose to ignore our parents once said the very same thing and we laughed in their face. Oh, mom and dad, you're so, oh my gosh, really? Life's so much better now. You see it? We can be, our lives can be consumed by our fear, our resistance to change. But again, not just the story of numbers, the whole Bible presents to us that we worship a God who is taking us somewhere, who is transforming us from the inside out. Beloved, we can't get there by standing still. We aren't following him if we refuse to move forward. We can grumble. We can complain. We can rebel. And we do. But we're always going to find ourselves coming smack up against God's sovereignty. Because here it is, once again, the Lord is in control. You're not. I'm not. We're not. The Lord is in control. And here's the thing. Where he's going, we're going one way or another. Maybe as a parent, you can relate to this point when you wanted to take your kid somewhere and your kid didn't want to go and they had a kicking, screaming tantrum the whole way. They still went where you were taking them. They just didn't enjoy the ride very much. Where the Lord is going, we are going one way or the other. Kind of step back and just make this even just a, a, a principle to take with you. And it's, th- this is a centerpiece in the sermon today. Through this part of the story, the book of Numbers, we receive this caution, if you will, this warning that is so important, it's later repeated by the prophets in the Bible, the poets, and the apostles. And it's this. Here it is. God will always remain faithful to his promises. God will always remain faithful to his promises. And God will also allow his people to walk away in rebellion and face the consequences. God will always remain faithful to his promises and God will always allow his people to walk away in rebellion and face the consequences. God is making a way. He's clearing the path. He's paving the road, leading us to the promised land of our redemption, our complete healing and salvation. But still, we can choose to go our own way. But that way will always end up getting us lost. Wandering away from God inevitably leads us into situations that blight our lives rather than bless them. And we need to hear that this morning because as I look out amongst all of you, some of you, some of us are wandering in the wilderness right now. Some of us are wandering in the wilderness. Some of us have been stuck there a long time. A long time. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. In our impatience with God, our frustration with His timing, our fear of change, we are more accustomed to grumbling than we are to trusting. Self check are you more accustomed to grumbling or trusting? In our impatience with God, our frustration with his timing, our fear of change, we're more likely to just go our own way rather than follow his. Don't tell me what you think you believe. Don't give me lip service. Show me where your steps are actually taking you. Are you going his way or are you going your own way? Beloved, going our own way will always prove to be a dead end. Just ask the generation that faded away in the wilderness. Going our own way will always prove to be a dead end, but it doesn't have to be the end for us. Remember the first part of that central principle that I showed you here in Numbers. We, we can focus on this idea that God will allow us to rebel and face the consequences, but the first part trumps the second. God will always remain faithful to his promises. Hear that in light of this. What that means is God will always remain faithful to his promises means he will always provide us a way out even when we wander from him. Hear that. He will always provide us a way out even when we wander from him. And I'm going to back up this claim with a very specific incident in the book of Numbers. There's many I could point to, but this is the best one, and it's really freaky. If you've never read Numbers, you probably have heard of this story. It's this crazy episode where the Israelites get attacked by a horde of snakes. It's not snakes on a plane, it's snakes in the wilderness, right? The people are grumbling again. They're grumbling again, and they're turning against Moses. And at this point, it's really significant, because this has been happening all along, but what they fail to see, what we fail to see, is relentless complaining is like venom. It becomes a poison that kills our relationships with God and with each other. Grumbling, murmuring, destructive criticism, ends marriages, ruins families, splits communities. If you're going to come and complain to me, the very first thing I'm going to ask you is, what's your solution? Everybody can take shots. Everybody can whine. Everybody can, I'm not going to use the word. (laughs) That worked very effectively. You know what word I had in mind. But if you come and complain, I'm going to say, what's your solution? And then the second question that's come right after the first is, how much are you willing to be invested in that solution? What are you willing to do? That's maturity. My friends, what the people fail to see is that their constant complaining. Their relentless, destructive criticism is like venom. It's a poison that's infiltrating their community. And like I said, the Israelites have been continuing to do this. They don't get it. So here, look at this. So God says, fine, I'm going to illustrate for you what you're doing to each other. And so God allows a barrage of snakes to infest the camp. The snakes are biting the people inflicting their venom on them it is a literal picture of what they're doing to each other and the people as they're being barra- you know barraged by these snakes they turn to Moses and they say Moses help us do something and God tells Moses something really weird and bizarre he doesn't say hey Moses I got an exterminator he's coming right your way he'll take care of this problem lickety split no God says Moses here's what I want you to do I want you to make a bronze snake. I want you to put it on a stick and then hold that pole up and tell the people to look up and live. And he does, and they do, and the people who look up live. Weird, wacky stuff, right? On the surface of this, you read this out of nowhere, you're sitting here and you're going, this is bizarre. But what we need to appreciate is the deeper revelation that comes through this experience. Notice what happens here. The instrument of God's judgment on the people, the snake, becomes the source of life for those who look to the Lord for healing. The source of judgment becomes the means of healing for the people. God provides a way out even in the midst of the dead end nature of the people's choice to disobey and rebel. The people are choosing to disobey and rebel. God allows them to do it and to face the consequences, but in the midst of it provides a way out. And that snake on a stick that you see in that picture there, that has become a symbol for healing that features as the emblem of medical professions today. If you've ever seen that when you see a doctor or a nurse, that's where it comes from. It comes from this story, this story of healing. But here's the thing, that symbol, that image, That picture of God taking a means of judgment and turning it into the source of our healing was intended always to become a much bigger symbol. And if you think I'm crazy, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and then listen to Jesus, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, frame his understanding of his sacrifice on the cross through this story in Numbers. Where Jesus says, What's gonna happen? This. This is God judging your sin through the cross. God's judgment comes on our sin, comes by way of the cross. But at the same time, God offers life to us through the one who hangs on the cross. If we look up to him, we are saved. If we only look and see the cross, all we see is the death we deserve. In our Protestant tradition, and maybe many, some of you came out of this, you know, it's like this big argument about crosses in churches, that crosses in churches should be like this. Jesus shouldn't be on them because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. I grew up Catholic, and I will tell you, while I'm totally fine with an empty cross, I still tend to prefer Jesus on the cross. Because again, when I look at that cross, yes, I can remember Jesus is no longer up there, but I can also look at that cross and just make it a piece of jewelry or put something on a shirt and really forget that that's actually the symbol of what I deserve. It's only when I see Jesus on that cross that I remember that's why I live. That's why I'm saved. My friends, going our own way will always prove to be a dead end, but it doesn't have to be the end for us. For us, God will always remain faithful to his promises, even as he allows his people to walk away in rebellion And face the consequences. And what I've just said to you is further brought home in Deuteronomy. That other book that we're looking at this morning. Very briefly. In this final book of the Torah. The next generation is on the verge of entering the promised land. They have a new leader Joshua. They're ready to go. But before they do. Moses reveals a bit of history with them. Again, reminding them of where they've been, of how far they've come, not just geographically, but spiritually. He reminds them you watched your parents and grandparents unnecessarily wander and die in the wilderness. And Moses reminds them of something also very significant. Even as those people wandered and died in the wilderness, remember, the Lord continued to provide for them and for you and to deliver you, even in the midst of your disobedience and rebellion. Think about that. God doesn't say, okay, that's it. You guys want to die in the wilderness? Fine, I'm out of here. Good luck. I'm going off with the next generation. This is significant. God says, okay, you want to die in the wilderness, you're going to wander in the wilderness until you die, but I'm going to stick with you every step of the way. Providing for you, delivering you. That is significant. And so Moses, framing that for the people in Deuteronomy, now turns and gives the most powerful words he has before they move on. He says to them, and that next generation he's speaking to is us. We're the next generation. He says, in the face of the temptation to be impatient, in the face of the temptation to grumble and to complain, in the face of the temptation to ultimately refuse to go forward with this God, remember five things. And the content of his speech in Deuteronomy is honestly the best application I can give us today for this message. It is the best application of how to walk through those wilderness moments that we come to in our lives without wandering, without getting stuck there. And here are the five keys, the five things that Moses outlines. One, Moses says, there is only one God. There is only one God. Recognize and run away from the pretenders. And you want to know how you can always recognize the pretend gods? Because you'll recognize them in that they always promise what they can't deliver and they always take away more than they give. And this God you know in Yahweh is the exact opposite. He always delivers what he promises and he always gives more than he takes away. There is only one God. That's one. Two. Therefore, follow this God alone When the Lord isn't at the center of your life, go back and look at how God arranges the camps, how they travel, and you'll see that God is always in the center. That's intentional. God says, when the Lord isn't at the center of your life, your thoughts, your words, your actions, when the Lord isn't at the center, you're going the wrong way. Whatever way you're going, if the Lord's not at the center, you're going the wrong way. Don't forget all the trouble, the suffering that can be avoided if you just keep your eyes on, if you just keep your mind on, if you just give your heart to him. There is only one God, therefore follow this God alone. That's two. And now three, remember it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about your righteousness and your power. Don't take the credit when things go well for you. When you all of a sudden get into trouble and you fall on your knees and you say, God, if you just get me out of this, man, I'm gonna be different, I'm gonna follow you. When God gets you out of it, don't all of a sudden stand up and go, man, I'm awesome. I'm so awesome. Remember the Lord who provides for and delivers you and give thanks and give glory to God. One, there is only one God. Two, therefore follow this God alone. Three, it's not about you, your righteousness, your power, it's about his. And four, Whatever and wherever God calls you to be, to do, don't ever say it's beyond your reach or your ability. Don't ever say if God calls you to it, I can't do that. I'm not capable enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. Don't ever say there's no way I could do that. If God calls you to go somewhere, to do something, don't ever say it's beyond your reach or your ability because the Lord is with you. And if the Lord is with you and if he calls you, you can do it. You can go wherever it is, whatever it is. You have the word of God, Moses says. That's why you have it. Keep it in your mouth so you will remember that the Lord is with you. And we can look further ahead where God gives us an even greater gift, not just the word made flesh, but God puts his spirit in us. My spirit is in you. If I call you to go, you can go. If I call you to do, you can do because I am with you. There is only one God, therefore follow this God alone, too. Three, it's not about you. Four, remember whatever and wherever God calls you, you can do it because the Lord is with you. And finally, number five, every day, every moment, every time, it comes down to a choice. And every day, every moment, every time, it's the same choice God's way or your way? God's way or your way. Moses is so crystal clear here. We have a world full of choices. We get overwhelmed by our choices, but here, last point in number five, Moses makes it really clear. There is no middle path. There is no plan B. There's either God's way or your way. And Moses really puts the exclamation point on it when he says, that's your choice. Every day, every moment, every time. God's way or your way, and it's this simple. God's way you live, your way you die. That's it. God's way you live, Your way you die, but you have to choose. You have to choose which way you're gonna go. And in the midst of these five things, something that Moses adds in there that we actually see throughout the story, which points once again to the cross is this. Is yes, we have to choose. And if we follow God, we live. And if we follow our own way, we die. But what Moses also says is never forget even in the midst of that choice that you make, God always chooses to go with you. Even when you wander. Even when you wander. We look at this book and I told you it's a reflection for us. We look at this book and we see ourselves, we see in the impatience and fear of the first generation of Israelites, we see our own impatience and fear. And impatience and fear turned 40 days into 40 years for the first generation of Israelites who were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They refused to go forward and grow, so they died running in circles in the desert. As Christians, we will find ourselves at times, many times, in those spaces of transition in our relationship with God, in that space in between where we are and where we wanna be, where God promises to take us. The invitation and challenge presented to us through the book of Numbers is how to avoid getting stuck there, wandering in the wilderness. We can grumble, we can complain, we can rebel, and we can wander, or we can remember, we can trust, and we can follow. I would be remiss if I didn't end pointing this out to you. When I say we can remember, we can trust, and we can follow, for us, that always has the the name Jesus on the end of it. We can remember Jesus. We can trust Jesus. We can follow Jesus. Let me point something startling out to you that you may have never noticed before. One of the very first things Jesus does when he comes on the scene in the Gospels, right after being baptized, is to journey through the wilderness for 40 days. You ever notice that? You ever think that's kind of weird? What's up with that? It's not coincidental. It's not coincidental. It's intentional. It points back here. Jesus walks the way of the Israelites. He enters those spaces of transition we find ourselves in. And even though he is tempted, what we see is Jesus does not falter. He does not wander, does he? Without complaint, without fear or hesitation, Jesus completes the journey we cannot finish. Jesus completes the journey we cannot finish. And now when you read that, you understand why the prophets and John the Baptist says, Jesus is the one who makes straight a path in the wilderness. Jesus makes a way out. Through the cross, Jesus reveals the way out of our sin and into his mercy and grace. Through his resurrection, his father has rolled away the dead ends we face apart from him. In Jesus Christ, God has provided a way to come home to cross over into the promised land of life as it should be, as it was meant to be on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, the God who has cared for and provided for us in the past will do so again in the future. Therefore, like the next generation, let us be strong and courageous, believing, trusting, following our Father who's taking us somewhere. Because where we are going is much more than a physical place, a spot on the map. It's a relational destination, a state of being, of wholeness and healing where God's spirit is in us and we are fully matured in Christ as the people of God in the kingdom of God. Amen.